Okay, <coughs> my name is Ziva and I'm a compulsive overeater. And I feel very nervous, but I know that in a minute I will settle. Okay, so my story is a story of recovering from relapse. I have been in program since 1980 and I have seven plus years of abstinence. So for 28 years I was struggling with being in and out of the food. And oh, I have some pictures. <coughs> and I don't want to scare any newcomer because I am not one of those people that came into program heavy, became abstinent and lost weight. I came into program, as you will see in the pictures, normal weight person, very close to how I look now. And in program, I gained and lost 80 pounds, probably three times, maybe four. So the good thing about this program is this is just my story. And when you come next week, you might hear a more uplifting story, even though my story is ending uplifting. <laughs> So, I was born into a very, very chaotic, sad family with a lot of anxiety and from a very, very early age, I used food to do two things, to regulate my anxiety, to calm me down and to fill that hole that I had inside. And probably in my early childhood, the way it looked like is that if you needed one cookie as a two-year-old, I wanted three. That's how it looked like. And all my childhood memories are about smells and memories that are connected to food. I think that it was around my teen years I crossed the line from using food in a way that supported me and helped me function to abusing food in a way that was self-destructive physically and emotionally and spiritually. And in my teen years, I started that cycle of, I don't want to say yo-yo, because it wasn't gaining and losing, it was binging and recovering. That was my cycle. I would binge those morbid binges where I would be so sick after that I needed a few days to recover, and then I could do it again. And... I will fast forward because I am over 60, if I'll go year by year, <laughs> we will be here like a month from now. So in my mid-twenties, I met the man who became first my husband, then my ex-husband. But <clears throat> when I met him, it was a very, very dysfunctional marriage and relationship. And the focal point of that marriage was Ziva's weight. So. I, you know, I had to lose weight and even when you see one of the pictures when I'm, I, I was 5'6", five, 5'7", five, and I weighed 125 pounds and I look anorexic, he said, if you lose 5 more pounds, you would look really good. Now, I want to get two things out of the story now. One is that I found out later that he is gay. And I could never look like a gay boy. And to make story even better, 15 years later, I found out that I was gay. So I promise you, to those who are new or struggling, this is not part of the package deal of recovery. 
but, but that's my story. So now I can go big. Okay. So, so I'm married. My weight is always the problem why our relationship is not good, why I'm not good, why everything is not good. And I agreed because I hated myself too. So we both felt the same about me. We agreed about it. And I had a child, and in 1980 she was two, and I joined OA in Israel. And I must say that I enjoyed joining the program because I met people who understood my story, who I can relate to. It was a lovely experience, but there was very little recovery. I mean, the first book that we translated to Hebrew was Food for Thought, not The Twelve Steps. <laughs> and, and that was okay at the time. You know, I went to meetings. I, I really felt welcomed and loved. I made great friends. And that's when you see in the picture, I gained 70 pounds for the first time in program. That was my joy of joining the program. And two years later... Oh, five minutes. Two years later, we moved to the United States, and I joined OA immediately. And again, I always joined the meeting, you know, worked the steps to the best of my ability at the time. And then we moved to the East Coast, and I joined How in the East Coast is called AWOL. I lived in Massachusetts, and they call it AWOL, standing for A Way of Life. And it was a very, very, very rigid, strict way of working the program, very punitive. And because of how I didn't like myself, working a punitive program with a sponsor that kept punishing me felt right. I had a husband like that, now I had a sponsor like that, life was good. <laughs> and <clears throat> Anyway, so I, I gained and lost 70 pounds, and you'll see in the pictures, and then we moved back here. And I must say one thing, in all those years that I've been in program, struggling, I went to meetings, I was one of those people that would drive to Long Island when I lived in Queens to hear the speaker, the speaker. And then on the way home I would binge and celebrate their recovery. <laughs> and I, I think that the missing link in my life was I could not sit through discomfort anxiety and pain and that's when I started eating at age two was to calm down anxiety pain and discomfort and later on at age 38 or whatever when I lived in New York it was the same thing I couldn't sit through those things and the reason I couldn't sit through those things is because I didn't have tools that can help me sit through them and, you know, over the years, I went to all those meetings, and I lived in all those states, and I met so many wonderful people who had such a good recovery. And, you know, those people came from such different backgrounds, ethnic groups, religion, gender. I mean, there was only one common denominator to all those people. Only one, those who had what I want. And what I want changed, you know, in my 20s when I came to program and I had a young child, what I wanted was to be thin. But what I wanted in my 50s was somebody who has a healthy relationship with their body, with people in their life, and with food. And those people had only one thing in common. They were willing, just willing, to be on a spiritual path. That's the only thing. 
they ate differently, they, everybody had a different abstinence, was allergic to different things. That's the only thing they had in common and that's the only thing I was unable to access. My mother survived the Holocaust. Her whole family, seven brothers, sisters, nephews, nieces were slaughtered in one day and there was no God. I mean, that's how I grew up. So we, I grew up in Israel, but we never went to temple, we never, there was no God. So it was so hard for me to, to try and, and, and create that journey for me of willingness even. I'm not talking about finding a God, just being willing to look for that God. And then, you know, it's funny, I'm just thinking, I spoke at Light a Candle a few years ago and I think my, my, I'm talking, it's like identical, however it's on the only story I have, so it should be identical, right? <laughs> I mean, if I start telling a different story, it's a problem, but it's just funny that it's exactly the same words. So I, I read this book that is an outside uh, sto- book written by a rabbi whose son died. And he said that experience challenged his belief. And then there is a sentence in the book that says, When my son died, God cried. And that sentence opened my heart to just the willingness. It's not like I found God then, but I was willing to explore. Because I do believe today deeply that when horrible things happen, God didn't create them. God cries when he sees sad things happening. You know, he created us, the universe created us, but it's not like there is somebody out there looking and saying, oh, you did that, bang. No, it doesn't happen that way anymore in my belief. And so that was one thing that happened that was really very, very important to my journey. The other thing that happened is that I had to go outside of these rooms to therapy and to another program, Al-Anon, I'm not talking about it, but I needed to do other work in order to figure out where this self-hate came from. Because the anger towards myself was just violent. That's how my eating looked like. It wasn't, you know, I once sponsored somebody that occasionally she would eat a bigger meal, but she ate like a person. I didn't eat like a person. When I binged, I, I, it wasn't a person binging. It was somebody just hating themselves. So I went there and I got the help, I'm still getting the help, and that process helped reduce the intensity of the binges. It didn't make me abstinent, but that's what it did. So that combined with my willingness now to look for God, to just be willing to, to search, was the beginning of my abstinence. So seven years ago I became abstinent and you know the disease is physical, emotional and spiritual. Physical, you know, I binged and I know that when I was new I really wanted to, people to describe their binges. It was like, tell me how you ate. So I'll just tell you one day in my life, like one of the worst days. So I would start my day, feed, you know, I have three children at the time, they were younger, and I would, let's say, give them cereal, and then they would all leave three bowls with soaking cereal. So I would finish those three bowls, and then eat some more, and then take them to school, and then, you know, come home and eat again. Bless you, 
<coughs> my mother said, if somebody sneezes when you talk, it means you are telling the truth. <laughs> Thank you. That was important. So, so, I mean, I would then decide that today is the day to make for them spaghetti and meatballs, which they would eat half a meatball and three spaghettis, and I would eat the, bowl, the pot. And then I would feel sick and ugly and hateful and then I would say guys do you feel like going out for ice cream and they would say no and then you know sometimes I would take myself for ice cream sometimes I would just go and buy them as a surprise but it's like that's how it was and then I would go to sleep and there were nights when my eating was the worst that I would like throw up in my sleep because my body couldn't contain that amount of eating so that's the physical disease. Emotionally, I had so much anger and self-hate. And spiritually, I was depleted. I had no God, nothing. So my recovery is also, you know, physical, emotional, and spiritual. And my recovery is about gentleness and kindness. My disease was about hate and anger. And my recovery is about gentleness, kindness, and forgiveness. I'm a very, very, very slow learner, and my recovery is a very slow recovery. And, and it's my story, and I'm, I'm proud and happy about the recovery I have, but I have to be honest, you know, the thing that is perfect in my recovery is that seven years and plus four months ago, I, God removed my obsession with sugar. And since then, I haven't had a dessert. And that's a miracle because I would binge on sugar every night. However, there, you know, there is a lot of food out there other than dessert. And my food is not perfect. There, I would say 87% of the time I eat perfectly. I eat in a way that I would like anybody to take pictures of my food. Beautiful salad, beautiful vegetables, beautiful fruit, beautiful protein. And 13% of the time, so I didn't say 99% well in one, 87. And 13%, it doesn't look like that. A meal can be bigger. I can choose an item that I know can trigger me. So what do I do on the physical part to maintain my recovery? So first of all, and some of it is, is really new, like I'm becoming more willing as time goes by. But so it started with the, with the sugar and then about two years ago, I think, I gave up health bars because I couldn't eat health bars the way they are intended, which is, as a, you know, nutrition, a high protein nutrition for people who are very active and have a long time between meals. I would finish my lunch at 12 and 12... 15 I would eat my health bars <laughs> so I gave up health bars two years ago and then about a year ago I gave up chips and that was also you know something else you know all those chips they have right now in the market that are like black bean chips <laughs> to me it sounds healthy I mean aduki beans like all those healthy anyway and I would look at the I would look at the serving size and it would say 20 chips, one serving, 100 calories. And I would buy it with the intention of eating the 20 chips. I even went so far as to divide the chips into little baggies so that I really have a serving. But 
you know, when I was not in a good place, I would eat more. So I gave up chips. And what I've been doing in the last, you know, very short time is that I, if I know that I'm going to be triggered, I am very careful about planning my food, and I tell my sponsor if I make a change. So it's not that my sponsor will tell me, don't eat it, or you are horrible, no. But it makes me honest and accountable to myself. And then the other thing I do on the physical level, you know, I went Thursday night to an Italian restaurant um, and I love pasta and pasta is not something that I cook at home, I can't have a pot of pasta and I don't eat it often, but I went to this place and I wanted to eat pasta and I told my sponsor, I'm going to eat half of the dish, of whatever it is. And when we ordered, I told the guy I need a dish to go and he said, I'll give you at the end of the meal if anything is left. And I said, no, no, you don't get it. You are bringing me half, and half you put in a dish to go, and bring it to me. And then he, he, you know, he was a little startled because he didn't understand why I need a dish to go. You know, it's so good. So he gave me the dish to go, and when I first saw the plate, it was so little. And I said, oh my God, I should have asked for a third to go. And, and then I said to myself, enjoy the dinner, enjoy the people, and if you're still hungry in a half an hour, you can text your sponsor and say, I need to eat more. And you know what? It was enough. It was enough. It's my head that looked at it and felt deprived. My body was happy. And I took it home, and the amazing thing is that I still have it. So it was not ten months ago, it was two days ago. But, but, but I didn't eat it when I got home, and I didn't eat it yesterday. And I will eat it maybe tonight for dinner. And if, but by now, their attraction is gone. So even if I don't eat it and I throw it away, it's fine. But it's like I know that if I didn't make the commitment to my sponsor... And she wouldn't know where I'm eating. And I would just, at the end of the day, out of nowhere, send this email of my food. I wouldn't have done it. So, so that's what I do on the physical level. On the other part of physical is, I never exercised. For years, I didn't exercise. And I prayed. I just prayed to God to make me willing to move more. That was my prayer. And it was a prayer, but then I wouldn't do anything. And about three, in October, it was three years. So three years ago, I started going to a pool in the morning before work. And I started by, I mean, I can't believe I'm doing it. It's over three years and I'm doing it three to four times a week. And if I don't go, somebody from the pool sends me an email and says, you were not there, your fellow mermaid missed you. <laughs> and it's like, it's, I'm going, and I'm, again, because my, my recovery and my life is about gentleness, it's not like, I'm not going and working out to the point that when I leave, I can't walk and breathe. I can walk and talk, but I'm moving for half an hour, and I'm exercising. So that's a miracle, and I haven't done it. And I have to say, tell you some small story there in the pool because it's so beautiful. There is a song in Hebrew that I will spare you and not sing about a woman singing to God who hides behind the palm tree. 
And, and she asked God to please make her husband remember her birthday. That's the song. But the whole song until you hear about the birthday is my God behind the palm tree. Are you there? Are you listening to me? So when I swim in the pool, right in front of the pool is this palm tree. And every time I swim, I see it. Like I do, you know, I, I see it all the time. So there, that's where my God is hiding. And some days it's foggy, the window in the pool, it's an indoor pool, so I can't see it well. And some days it's like beautiful and they open the windows and you can see it. So every day, every day when I swim, it's like I talk, I, I sing the song in my heart in Hebrew. And I, and I say, you know, God that hides behind the palm tree, are you listening? Or, and, and that's like my, my connection with that external God. I also have an internal God now that I believe, you know, it tells in the story of creation, that's the, I have five more, this is it? Oh, done, that was 20, do we have more time or no? Ah, no, okay, so, what did I say? Somebody probably will ask about God. Everybody asked about God in this meeting. So, I'm done. Thank you. Okay, this is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so after one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are of my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. <clears throat> yes, Ali. Thank you, Ziva. Would you talk about your internal presence? <laughs> <laughs> Ali is asking me about the internal presence of God. Thank you, Ali. <laughs> so... <clears throat> It's short. I just believe that the story of creation for all religions is that people are made in God's image. So I just believe that in every one of us there is a little tiny nugget of God. So when I pray many times I feel like I pray internally to that strength in me or courage in me to, to walk through things that are difficult and to give me the courage to sit through discomfort, pain, and anxiety, which were, are my cause for wanting to eat, and because I access this God more, I am able now to sit through this more. Yes. How did you quit sugar? How did I quit sugar? It wasn't a fight. For 28 years it was a fight. And I went back to it. And when I finally quit sugar, I can tell you the last day, I, uh, my last binge, that I went to In-N-Out, and I finished In-N-Out, and I was on my way to Baskin Robbins. Okay? This is seven and a half years ago. And I called the woman who was my sponsor at the time, and I said to her, I'm on my way to Baskin Robbins, and I think you should sponsor somebody else. I just can't do it. And she said, are you asking me to hold on to you or to let go of you? And I said to her, I'm asking you to let go of me. I just can't do it. I can't do it. And she said, are you willing not to eat Baskin Robbins tonight? 
And I said, let me think about it. <laughs> and I parked my car because I was driving. I parked my car and I closed my eyes and I said, okay, God, I never called anyone on my way to eat ice cream. I always call after and say, I did it again. So what, am, am I willing? And I didn't hear a voice, but I called her back and I said, I'm willing not to eat ice cream tonight. And I never had ice cream since. So, and 28 years prior to that, I made promises and I just couldn't. So it wasn't, it was like, it was lifted. Carol? Um, hi, thank you for sharing. You might be very surprised by my question. But I'd like to ask you um, to talk about how you do service. Thank you, Carol. <laughs> <coughs> so, thank you so much for asking. <laughs> I, um, I, I told her before, if I forget to talk about service, would you ask? So I just want to say that no matter what stage you are in your journey, you can do service. When I became abstinent seven years ago, when I, yes, when I became abstinent um, seven years ago, I became a secretary of four phone meetings at nine o'clock at night. Nine o'clock at night here is midnight in New York. I was in my bed, clothing optional, <laughs> and, and I basically knew that I'm not going to eat. I was facilitating four phone meetings a week. And I didn't always share. I made sure people share. Sometimes I asked friends to to lead, but you know, then another op way of service, I mean, I went to a meeting in New York that I really loved, and I, <clears throat> it was about the first three steps, and I know how important they are, so I got the format from the secretary, and Roberta and I started that meeting here, and it's running now every Tuesday, and it's like, I, whenever there is an event, a birthday or anything, I always ask whoever runs it if I can please speak about relapse because I know that that's a gift I can give so many people who struggle. So thank you, Carol, for yeah. <laughs> Yes, Diane. Thank you so much, Siva, for <coughs> your complete and your honesty. Could you talk about um, how your relationships with people and your various partners have changed over the years and in recovery? This will bring us to five o'clock tonight, <laughs> but the question was how did my relationship change? So I will just say that I'm involved today in healthy, loving, kind, and supportive relationships. Whether it's with my significant other, we've been together for five years, whether it's with my children, whether it's with my friends, and even my ex-husband who I have a lot of big feelings about, which of course I won't go into him, into it. You know, I was able to make an amend to him as part of my process of amend that was very moving for me because I was able to, <clears throat> I was able to make an amend for any, any way that I hurt him without going into anything he did to me. And when he started saying things like about, but you did blah, 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 I just said, I can see your pain. But I didn't, I was so wanting to get in there and say, 
Of course, I did that like nothing. So even with him now, the relationship is very cordial. So that's the short version. The long, we can go out for coffee. I will not spare any detail. Yes. Yes. Thank you very much. Uh, I assume that you still at least occasionally have a resentment. And uh, when, when you do, you, what, what do you do? Do you do bondage prayer? Do you do other things? What do you do? So what I do, I have resentments often because I am human and I am in a workplace and I am in a relationship with the world, so yes. And what I do is, number one, I acknowledge it. And number two, I do many times loving kindness meditation, which is like a Buddhist kind of a meditation where I, I pray for that person in a beautiful way and I say, you know, I was angry at my boss the other day about some decision she made without consulting with me and I felt like I'm livid. But I knew that it's not a good way to, to, uh, to talk about it. So I went into my office and I said, let's call her just for the Avis. So I said, may Avis be happy and healthy, may she be successful, may she be calm. Like, I have a list of things I said and then I didn't need to confront it that day. And then the next day we had a talk and it was great. So I do, and sometimes suddenly my meal is bigger. And then I'm like, oh, what am I resentful at? So that happens also. Okay, yes, let's see if there is another question. I wanted to say something. Yes. Uh, thank you so much. What is, uh, can you talk about how your relationship with God has changed? I mean, particularly coming from your parents and that sort of there is no God. How has that changed in your recovery? On top of what I said, or to say it again, yeah, because to say it again. okay, so <laughs> so I I reach out to God in two ways. I reach out to an external God that sometimes lives in the palm tree on Olympic, and then I also reach out to an internal source of courage and integrity inside me that when I feel like I get dysregulated and you know undone I reach out to that power which is God inside of me to give me courage and strength to walk through what I'm walking through yes hi good morning Uh, thank you so much I loved hearing your share this morning, and my question is, how how do you how do you deal with the 13% of the time you were describing as the food not being picture perfect to not turn into a full blown binge? So I haven't had a full blown binge in like nine years. And I think that the main thing is that when I'm in the 13%, I acknowledge that I'm there. And let's say it's a meal that I ordered something that usually I don't order and I'm not doing good. Or let's say that there was a party at work. And I'll give you an example. Okay, so I had breakfast at home, right? And I come to work and oh my God, I forgot they have a breakfast welcome to a new person. And I'm eating a bagel. That's the 13%. So I would say, why were you eating it? You already had breakfast. And then I say, you know what? 
you used to have seven bagels. You had a bagel and maybe in your lunch you had a salad and, and that's it, it's over. So I just acknowledge it and sometimes it's not because I'm resentful and it's, not, it's because I'm a compulsive overeater. So I have an imperfect meal and I move forward. And I, if, it's, if it's a bigger meal and I feel really uncomfortable, I will call my sponsor. My sponsor. I will call my sponsor and I will talk about it. And my sponsor also has this same kindness and forgiveness and gentleness. So that's why it's working for me. And then I will move on. But the main thing for me, the main thing is when I start beating myself up and being angry, that's when I will continue to eat. So I need to forgive myself. Now, if I ate right now a cupcake, this will be breaking my abstinence. Because for today, that's black and white. Yes. Can you talk about sponsorship and Yes. I sponsor four people. And I sponsor the way I am sponsored and the way that I mentioned. In a way that is loving and kind and forgiving. I am not a sponsor that tells people what they have to do. I am a sponsor that goes with them and with where they are. And if I want to give feedback, I ask, would you like some feedback for me? And usually the answer is yes, and then I give feedback. But I don't have any black and white. If somebody that I sponsor <coughs> still eats desserts and they think it's working for them, then that's fine. You know, they have a journey. I always remember that it took me 28 years to become abstinent. So somebody who wants a rigid sponsor who got to their goal weight after six months will not ask me to sponsor them. People who want what I have know my story. So it's always about being kind and gentle. Yes? Oh. No, sorry. I thought you had the head. So, yes? Thank you for your story. Um, can you describe your journey from self-hatred? Yes, thank you for the question because this is what I realized not so far ago. My self-hate was expressed in how I treated my body and in the last few years that I've been abstinent I feel like some of my self-hate, I don't know if it's hate, but some of those negative thoughts appear now in a different way, which is catastrophizing. I catastrophize and think about horrible things that can happen. And I find those thoughts very intrusive and disturbing. And I have very little control over those thoughts. And in a way, somebody pointed out to me that it's almost like the self-hate is not anymore at my body with food, but if I keep seeing myself run over by a car, that's something aggressive happening to my body. So I am now in the process of struggling with that, with trying to find ways. And the way that I do it is by meditation and by writing down positive thoughts that can replace the bad thoughts. So if I... So I created this scene in my mind of me and my loved ones all by this remote ocean lying on these towers that are very soft and hearing the waves crash. This beautiful image. 
And when I get to this self-hate, which is now looking like catastrophizing, it doesn't look now like shoving food down my mouth. It looks now like thinking that something horrible will happen to my child, to my partner, to my whatever. I now have this picture that I created, and I try to access that picture right away. And, and it, I have to do it many times a day. It's very painful, and I'm struggling with it, and it happens a lot. But at least, number one, I don't eat over it. And number two, I'm learning and developing tools to replace those self... It's really it's self-hate that looks different. It doesn't look like eating 12 donuts, but it looks... It's a little more sophisticated way of self-hate. <laughs> so I'm working on it. Yes. Um, I can't pinpoint the day that it happened because for seven years, and I worked with two different sponsors, but for seven years, I have been sending my food after the fact. Not every day in the last few years, but I would do it. And I would always be honest. I never hid anything I ate. But <clears throat> I realized that there are days that I'm in the 13% and I'm not happy. So I thought, what can I do in order to change it? And what I need to do is be more accountable. And I know that when I reach out, you know, God is, you know, this non... It's, God talks to me through people. They are the messengers. So I can ask God to help me not eat. But many times, unless I talk to a human being and run it by them, it's not enough. So I, I became more willing to take the next step, which is send my, plan my food ahead. And on days that, most days I eat very similar, but when I, have, I go out, or when there are events or things that might be harder, I am more willing, imperfectly, imperfectly, but I'm more willing to make a commitment to plan, to call the restaurant, look at the menu, decide what I'm having. And, and it's, again, my story is a story of very tiny baby steps of willingness. And I've been coming to this meeting for 30 years, not here, but you know, from when it started. At the beginning it was AA and OA. There were two speakers in the kitchen sink. But I, I, I know that I've come all those years and I've heard people who who just were struck willing. And that's amazing, but that's not my story. It's tiny baby steps, and there is a lot of growth and a lot of recovery, but there is still a long journey in front of me. <coughs> yes, Carol. Thank you very, very much. Um, is there any, um, uh, is, was there any thinking or mindset of why you Stuck around this long because um, <laughs> no, I mean you know they didn't get the you know major recovery that, that okay, you know what I'm asking. Yes, Carol is asking if I have any idea of how I stuck along for so long, and it's a very good question because you know I would come to meetings and people would see me losing my weight and looking great, and then I would be in relapse. And I would, you know, I could never make a commitment to anything because I never knew where I would be next week. You know, in the last seven years, I've showed up to anything. I've never canceled anything. 
work and program. I, but then, you know, you know, I was depleted. I was. I, I think that the only reason why I kept coming back, and there is one person in the room here who knows me from those days and maybe can attest, the reason is because we couldn't find anything else. That's the only reason. If I found, you know, about 11 years ago, 10, just before I finally became more willing, my, one of my close friends and I said to me, Ziva, let's go to Weight Watchers. And I said, you know what, let's try that. I never tried Weight Watchers. And I went with her. She lost all her weight. She's still 11 years later maintaining her weight. And I gained three pounds the first week because at the end of the first meeting, they sold us those snacks. And they said, one, one after dinner. And there was like those mini cupcakes. I mean, so I really came out of desperation and because there was nowhere else I could go. I was getting heavier and heavier, occasionally thinner, heavier again, and I, and it was hard coming back every time. There was a lot of shame, there was a lot of pain, but, you know, somebody once gave me a card in New York, 30 years ago, a card that had a track of a train, like you didn't know where the train is going behind the hill, and it says, don't leave five minutes before the miracle. And when I got it, I was like, yeah, sure. And, you know, I guess that if we just stay long enough, and again, I want to go back to what I said, that the only thing that those people who had recovery had in common is the willingness to be on a spiritual journey. That's the only thing. So I guess that those of us who are in relapse and can't get it is because there is a stra- oh another sneeze that's important it's true. so so the the only thing is really you know being willing and the, those of us who are in relapse except, at least that's my experience maybe some people have a different story was when i struggled with the willingness to be willing to to open up to to god No, a sponsor, and I can tell you when I sponsor, I can never make anybody abstinence, never, and I can never make somebody eat, but the sponsor can be my support and somebody I can lean on and I can reach out to and I can hear their experience, but a sponsor didn't make me abstinent. I've had over the first 28 years the best sponsors in the universe. I mean, I I told you I would go to a meeting in Long Island and ask the one woman that shared to be my sponsor and, and she would become my sponsor and I would not be able to do it. I mean, I had great sponsors and I think that a sponsor is a very important piece of my recovery and a very important relationship, but it's God and me and the sponsor. It's not that the sponsor is making me abstinent. And I sponsored over the years many people who couldn't become abstinent. And I know that it's not because I did anything wrong, it's because they were not ready. And I'm not saying they were not willing. I think we are all willing and wanting, but not ready. So... Yes. You said your parents were Holocaust survivors. 
Yes. Yes, that's a very good question. Thank you. My parents are both passed away, and my mother, I had a very troubled relationship with her growing up because she was clinically depressed and was not present. And as a little child, and I work with children now, so I know children cannot have the empathy to understand their parents. Children need parents that are present. And if my mother is depressed, it's not my problem when I'm three. But when I was 40, you know, when I went through therapy and I understood that the level of anger that I had at her was directed at me and I, I, I did a lot of work to forgive her and I'm fortunate that the last two years of her life, she died from cancer, so the last two years I was able to go to Israel like five times and be there with her and be loving and gentle. and. Like all, all the years growing up, I could never touch her, I couldn't let her hug me, and I could go back and for two years physically take care of her when I went to visit and, and heal that relationship. So, and you know, she didn't change, but I was able to see her beauty and understand where she was coming from. And, and I think, you know, that this ties into, you know, that self-hate, because when a little child doesn't feel loved, it doesn't matter if the parent is depressed or the parent is in club med in Switzerland. For the child, what matters is that they don't have their parent. So that anger is directed at themselves. So thank you. It was a very good question.